0: Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education.
1: Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ortho Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kolechi Corja, and we have the pleasure of having my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rafael Sierra, here with us today. Dr. Sierra obtained his medical degree at the Pontifical Xavier University and completed his residency training here at the Mayo Clinic. He then completed three separate fellowships through the Insall Scott Kelly Institute, the Muller Foundation, and the University of Miami. Dr. Sierra has an extensive research background and is well known for his work both here and internationally. He currently serves as the chair of our Adult Reconstruction Department here at the Mayo Clinic. We are lucky to have Dr. Sierra with us here to speak today. Welcome, Rafa.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Great to be here with you today.
1: Great. So I thought our first topic, we would talk about the current thinking of hip preservation. Anywhere from hip arthroscopy to PAO to total hip arthroplasty. So, Rafa, what are the causes of hip dysplasia and how do patients usually present?
0: Uh, that that's a great question. So, I mean, there's really only one cause and it's, you know, at birth. So this is usually a condition. Um, that when we're seeing them, it's it's because the patient has had um, untreated hip dysplasia, meaning that at birth, it was never caught, or they may have had treatment for hip dysplasia, uh, usually with non-surgical treatments, such as Pavlik harnesses, which are some braces, or even casting at childhood, and they may have some residual hip dysplasia that needs to be treated. Um, it's, um, it's, it's very interesting. So it's commonly seen in firstborn women. Uh, that's probably the most common patient that I see, uh, sometimes associated with breach, you know, deliveries. Um, but it can occur really, at, at you know, in any child for any of any, um, in any family, but most commonly it's in the oldest female, uh, patient or sibling.
1: Okay, and then how do these patients usually present to your
0: clinic? So most patients present with uh, hip pain and um, it's important to note that uh, the hip really doesn't hurt where most people think it hurts, up towards the iliac crest uh, or in the hip bone. These patients usually present with hip pain, which they describe as pain in the groin uh, so that's the most common location of their pain. And it also is associated with some uh, what we call mechanical symptoms, which is some catching or locking in the hip. Um, there's some patients that may present with symptoms of giving way in the hip joint or instability, but that is less um, less common, or with some symptoms associated with hip weakness. Uh, And they may have pain towards the outside part of the hip, um, mainly because the muscles on the outside part of the hip can get fatigued with uh, extreme activities or use. Um, So uh, although the majority of patients present with groin pain, there's a subset of patients that may present with other areas uh, around the hip that are painful as well. And so once they present to your clinic, you've done the exam,
1: what image modalities are you currently using to work up patients with hip dysplasia?
0: Yeah, so our standard imaging modalities for all patients that are young, that are coming in with what seems to be hip-related symptoms, we get uh, standard radiographs, including an AP of the pelvis. We get a lateral hip x-ray, usually a frog leg lateral, And then we get a done view and there are different views that you can get called done. but the 45 done view is the most common uh, x-ray that we get. Um, That's just a special x-ray to look specifically at the neck of the femur uh, and it's anterolateral and then another one in the anterior aspect of the uh, neck. Just to see if they could have congruent and uh, femoral deformities that could also be associated with hip dysplasia as well as other other causes of hip pain, such as impingement.
1: right. We know there's there's certainly different radiographic parameters that you look for that tells you how much dysplasia versus impingement. Um, How often are you getting advanced imaging for a patient with dysplasia? Are you getting an MRI or a CT routinely, or can you kind of tell everything you need to know on the
0: X-ray? Yeah, so an MRI has become the standard of practice mainly because the majority of these patients will present with some labral, labral pathology. So if they have, you know, the labrum is a is a structure that deepens the socket, and in some patients with instability, they could have tears in the labrum, and um, so an MRI has become pretty much the standard of care for these patients. Uh, What's controversial is whether you should have contrast in the hip joint or not. But, you know, the majority of patients that I see already have an MRI by the time I see them. A CT scan is an option for some patients that that have uh, both uh, socket-sided problems as well as potentially some uh, femoral-sided issues, uh, either uh, a large femoral neck uh, deformity or what we call a CAM lesion or in certain circumstances, patients may present with abnormal uh, femoral version. And that's, you know, you can describe that better as like the twist that the femur has. They have an abnormal twist, either towards the front or towards the back. And these patients um, should be um, evaluated with a CT scan. So you can get a sense of what the combined version or combined Uh, twisting of both the femur and socket is, so that you can make a decision uh, preoperatively as to whether they need additional surgery other than uh, our standard of care.
1: And then, so once you get your imaging, you've got your exam, what
0: are your indications
1: for surgery in a patient with hip dysplasia?
0: Yeah, so, um, I mean, when by the time I see patients, and, and to tell you the truth, the diagnosis of this condition uh, has become uh, more commonly uh, diagnosed by practitioners, and I, I mean by multiple practitioners, I mean primary physicians are now uh, getting x-rays and being able to diagnose this a little bit easier. Uh, our sports medicine colleagues are also making this diagnosis, um, and so by the time that they reach me it's because they've already have the diagnosis of hip dysplasia and many patients have already undergone appropriate non-operative management which is the first step and the first step of non-operative management is limitation of their activities because many of them have pain with that is activity related and usually activities of high level or high impact activities many of these patients could you know are gymnasts or or hurdlers or soccer players. I mean, many of them. And so stopping their activities and seeing how they respond to that is important. Uh, Physical therapy, especially if they have weakness or any any, uh, pain with uh, muscle fatigue is important and see how they do. Uh, And I would say that probably um, 90% of patients respond to that, uh, you know, temporarily, unfortunately. And many of them if they truly have a dysplastic hip once they start to engage back into their activities will start having pain again and those are the patients that then um, if they clearly have dysplasia and that is that the thermal head is uncovered uh, by the socket and has all the radiographic features associated with hip dysplasia um, then those patients are good candidates for a procedure that we call a periacetabular osteotomy, uh, which is a, 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 an osteotomy or a procedure that we do around the hip bone or the pelvic bone to turn the socket around so that we can improve the coverage of the femoral head It's uh, what we call a reorientation osteotomy of the hip. And this is a fascinating procedure that's been around for, for three decades now or more. Uh, and that has shown excellent results uh, for these patients.
1: That's great, and we know that you're one of the experts in the field and perform that surgery fairly often. What are the current outcomes with the procedure with the PAO?
0: So um, that's a great another great question because the way that I look at this is that there are really three objectives uh, with the procedure. Uh, you know. The first objective to me is to manage the patient's pain that they have now. Uh, and that means, you know, many of these patients present and, and we've, we've written papers with the anchor group showing that these patients that present prior to periacetabular osteotomy have significantly decreased patient reported outcome forms compared to age um, match controls. So clearly these patients are not doing well from a pain and functional standpoint. So the first objective of the PAO is to help them with that. And we've written several papers now showing that we're able to, you know, increase those patient reported outcome forms at a year or two, uh, even past what we call the uh, MCID, which is, uh, you know, a, a measure that we use to see how well we've done and if we've, if we've met that MCID, that means that these patients are doing much better than preoperatively. So that's objective number one. Objective number two is to get them back to well, one thing is pain. Is objective number two is to get them back to their previous activity, meaning sporting activities or activities of daily living. And that's a different that's a different situation because um, although many patients are improved with their activities of daily living. Um, we've looked at the results of, you know, getting back to sporting activities about a year, and it's about a half of the patients and, uh, there are reasons why they can't. I mean, very few are actually related to the hip pain. They're more related to other reasons. Well, you told me not, the doctor told me not to do it again. Number two, I've, I was a hurdler in, in college, and I'm done with college, so I'm not doing it again. I'd rather not do it. So, But many of them are able to get back to certain level of activities, uh, but only half at a year are able to get back to high-level athletic activities, although I've had plenty of patients that have been able to get back to running marathons, triathlons, and uh, play competitive uh, sports again. But if you look at all comers, then that's, uh, that happens to about half of the people about a year. We still have to look at it a little bit further out, but at a year, that's what's going on. So that's an important, from an expectation standpoint, that's really important to discuss with your patients because it is a big operation. And the third objective is really the whole, what I call the holy grail, is to really change the natural history of this hip. So we know that these patients if untreated, we'll have, will carry a risk down the road of developing arthritis in their hip joint. Right. And um, the third objective we've been able to meet by decreasing that risk about 50% at 10 and 20 years. So uh, those, that's the way that I'm looking. So the results are, are overall overwhelmingly positive for these patients.
1: Thanks. Yeah, that sounds like pretty reasonable results, especially with what they're predisposed to without surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we know that some patients have borderline hip dysplasia, and they might have a little bit of femoral acetabular impingement as well. And those patients, how are you siding between hip arthroscopy versus a PAO? Or are you doing a combination? How do you make that decision?
0: Yeah, so, the, so what we're talking about is a patient that has borderline coverage of, of the femoral head um, may have what we call a lateral center edge angle between 18 or 25 degrees. Um, so these patients are usually, uh, there are two patients that present this way. There's a true dysplastic hip that has borderline coverage. And those, that patient will present with symptoms that are more instability symptoms and their range of motion is usually pretty normal or even increased they may have increased uh, femoral version as well. While the other patient is usually a male patient uh, that has uh, even decreased range of motion in their hip with then borderline acetabular coverage. So I do think that this, that patient presents more with uh, impingement type symptoms and they may have a CAM deformity or a femoral head and neck junction abnormality. So those are two different patients and they both could be treated um, with a periacetabular or osteotomy. It would be more likely on the patient with the symptoms of impingement to respond to an arthroscopic procedure as well. Um, but then ignoring the abnormal load through the acetabulum may or may not catch up to them down the road, uh, even though... You may have improvements in the acute symptoms at this time. So, um, you know, I, I have a thorough discussion with the patients. Uh, we know that many of these patients with impingement symptoms alone may have improvements in the symptoms now. And it's really getting a sense for what they're willing to accept down the road. Uh, because we do know, even in, in our natural history study, that the patients that did the worst were that specific group that had impingement as well as mildly dysplastic hips. Uh, and I think that there's a reason for that. So if the if you think about the what happens with uh, long-term impingement of the hip, there's eventual damage to the socket with continued impingement. And if you already have a small roof, right, and you impinge into that and you damage it, well, that makes the roof even more narrow and so those patients will have the rapid progression those are the patients that i typically see with less than 40 years of age with pretty severe arthritis uh, requiring a total hip replacement so after a thorough discussion with the patient if they feel that they want to treat a condition that could have a poor prognosis down the road then i would recommend doing both procedures at the same time meaning we would do uh, and I mean at the same time as we do it, we sometimes do this stage, but sometimes we do it in the same setting, but at least within a, you know, a reasonable time frame, And that would entail sometimes going in arthroscopically, repairing the labrum, treating the cartilage damage, doing a, a femoral head neck junction osteochondroplasty. And then in a subsequent procedure, which is usually staged no later than a month afterwards, we would do the PAO uh, to improve the coverage of the femoral head. Um, The tricky part about these patients is that they already have poor range of motion and then you do the PAO, they will lose a little bit more range of motion with the correction of the socket. So um, you have to be very careful as to not overcorrect them, otherwise you'll impinge, they'll impinge even more. And some of these patients that have combined uh, dysplasia and CAM and femoral retrotorsion, we've uh, even gone, you know, even towards the extremes where we've actually done um, femoral and averting osteotomies or derotational osteotomies to help de- improve that range of motion before impingement. That's
1: great. And so you touched on a certain subset of patients, the young patients with advanced arthritic change, maybe right? they had dysplasia that went under I see these patients often. Uh, what are your indications for a hip replacement in those young patients versus trying some alternative treatments?
0: Yeah, so I mean, if the patient is young, we certainly try to avoid a hip replacement as long as possible. Um, the problem is that many, many young patients are really debilitated with their condition. Uh, I mean, they can't, I mean, we're not, we're not even talking about sports anymore. We're talking about getting up, sitting, uh, you know, just hanging out They're gaining weight. They're mad because they can't exercise. Uh, they've now, they're now only doing, you know, minor activities such as an elliptical and biking and they still have pain. I mean, these patients, unfortunately are at a point and what I do feel is that the dysplasia, you know, so it's what I just said. So if you have a dysplastic hip and you get, and you have a short segment of roof, and now that becomes damaged, that's even worse now. So those patients tolerate much less arthritic changes than the patients that have normal joints, essentially. So those patients usually end up having to have the hip replacement at a very young age. And although we, we usually tell them that they should wait as long as they can, I mean, many of these patients with dysplasia will need a hip replacement at fairly young age. Uh, And we'll try non-operative things, of course. We'll try injections. We'll try some with cortisone. I mean, there are other types of injections that are done by our sports medicine colleagues uh, that have provided some relief, but they all are short-lived. I mean, we're just trying to buy some time to try to buy them some time. Uh, before their hip replacement. When we're talking about the long-term durability of these joint replacements, we also have to take into account um, the problems that could occur with delaying joint replacement. So I tell patients, you know, there's no difference if you're 33 or 34. I mean, if you could wait five years and 38, who knows what we'll do in five years from now. Or more importantly, we we're gonna learn five years of what we've been doing now. So if you can wait five or 10 years, it's great. Go ahead and wait. And many people say, yeah, I'm doing okay. I know, now I know what I have and I'll be happy to wait because I can. Other people will say, I can't wait. I'm ready to have this hip replaced. And it doesn't matter where I'm 33 or they're 33 and a half that we're talking about longevity and decades of the hip replacement today that I don't think it makes much of a difference.
1: Great points, Raphael. I've been taking some notes here. I'm going to try to summarize here. So we first talked about hip dysplasia, and it's usually caused from a birth abnormality or untreated hip dysplasia, usually in that first female-born patient. And they're going to present with hip pain in the groin, but it can be associated with some mechanical symptoms or some instability. You said the standard imaging includes x-rays, but MRIs have become standard of care due to soft tissue abnormalities. CT scans are an option for socket or femoral-sided problems as well. Your indications for PAO are failure of conservative management and radiographic indicators of hip dysplasia. Then you said the outcomes are pretty good in decreasing pain and getting patients back to function. And then lastly, we talked about that young patient with advanced arthritic change. And you said that they may be candidates for hip replacement, especially if they become debilitated and conservative management fails.
0: Let's, and yeah, I think the only thing to add would be, you know, because we get that question all the time is, OK, I'm diagnosed with hip dysplasia, but I have no pain. Uh, what to do then? And, you know, I think that um, my answer to that has always been, you know, I can't make you any better than no pain. Right. right. So, yeah, so there's only one way that I can gauge the success of my surgery, and it's with pain relief. So uh, the worst thing that could happen, and I've seen it, is a patient with no pain undergoing a PAO and then coming back because now they have pain. So they're unhappy and they don't know why they underwent that big operation that's made them worse than what they are. So observation is fine, keeping an eye on things. Education is critical for all these conditions. I mean, some people will accept what they have as long as they know why their hip hurts. Oh, yeah. Okay. I understand that now. So I won't do this or do that. I mean, I'll change my lifestyle. And some people are willing to do it.
1: Yeah. So definitely not doing it in a preventative fashion. So if somebody has abnormalities and no pain, uh, they don't need surgery. Yeah. Great. Raphon. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time out to talk with us today.
0: No problem. Thank you for the invitation.